<laughs> okay. Um, cool. So, welcome. Welcome to the Mythgard Academy's presentation on Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. If you're new around the Mythgard Academy, just to let you know what this is, the Mythgard Academy is a series of open uh, uh, courses and discussions that we've been holding now for almost four years. Uh, and the, uh, the general public, the, 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 the wonderful group of people who donate uh, money to help support Signum University, the institution uh, uh, that I'm associated with, and which, of course, sponsors this, uh, uh, this show. Uh, the people who, who support Signum get to elect what work we talk about. Uh, and the winner of the election this time around was Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, our first medieval work, which I'm super excited about. And, of course, I, I've been looking forward to digging into Boethius with you guys for a really long time. Those of you who have been listening to me for a long time have heard me drop references to Boethius for the last decade. Um, uh, Boethius is enormously influential, uh, of course, just in general. I mean, Boethius's Consolation of, Th- of Philosophy is one of the one of the, the foundations of Western thought. I mean, it's, it's an enormous... Enormously, uh, we're talking like for a thousand years. This was a top five most read book. Um, absolutely, um, absolutely uh, awesome. Anyway, so uh, really, really, really widespread, really popular. And um, okay, so, but of course, more specifically for many of uh, of us uh, uh, who are uh, attending this, is that uh, we have. Um, uh, we have Tolkien, of course, right? Tolkien was uh, uh, was very influenced by Boethius, and that's, of course, the context in which I've mostly been dropping references. Uh, there's a lot of Tolkien that really reminds me of Boethius, and I think you'll see some of the bits that, uh, you know, when we get there, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll find some of the things that I find uh, relevant, especially Boethius's treatment of uh, predestination and free will, and Boethius's uh, definition of chance. Both of those things will probably... I always think of Boethius when I'm reading the Ina Lindale, and you'll probably you'll probably see a similar thing. So, okay. So, oh, but of course, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, Boethius will be even bigger for you because Boethius was hugely important. C.S. Lewis talked about Boethius a lot. Uh, it's one of, his, uh, one of his absolute favorites. So even a bigger influence on Lewis than it was on Tolkien. Um, let me give a little bit of background on Boethius, I don't want to. I want to dig in too much. I want to. I want to get straight into the text uh, as, uh, as 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 quickly as we can. Um, but uh, just some some background, like who is Boethius and what the heck is going on. Um, Boethius uh, is living around the turn of the sixth century, right? So we're talking uh, almost exactly a hundred years after the fall of Rome. Okay. He considers himself a Roman, right? So he's 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 a Roman dude living a hundred a century after the fall of Rome. The Roman sort of structure is still kind of theoretically there. You'll hear him talk about the the Roman Senate and stuff, and and consuls and that kind of thing. So the sort of the Roman political structure was still sort of more or less in place, just under the rule of an Ostrogothic king uh, after the Ostrogoths uh, had conquered things. So. It's still kind of there, but so the, 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 they're subject to the whims of the Ostrogothic king, but they still kind of have the, the you know, the Ostrogoths kind of came in and they're like, well, no, we're like totally just, we're not throwing down Rome, we're totally, it's still Roman and awesome. I mean, we're still sort of in that stage. So anyway, so that's, and Boethius was, uh, was, was a prominent public figure. He had been consul himself, so we're talking uh, a, a 
a, a very important uh, uh, public career that Boethius had. He was also a scholar of very great note and had published many other things prior to the Consolation of Philosophy. Boethius is like the king of the liberal arts. He had published stuff on, on, on music, on, uh, uh, on, on theology... A very, uh, a very influential uh, piece he wrote on the Trinity, for instance, um, and uh, uh, it, it, you know, science. He was all over the place. I mean, he he was uh, he so he was he was a public intellectual. Uh, he was a public. He was a, a politician, a, a public political figure. Um, now, the context of Boethius intellectually. One thing to keep in mind, there are sometimes uh, people sort of have objections to the line of thought that Boethius, or sort of, I, one comment I've heard when when talking about Boethius before is like, well, he seems to take a lot for granted. I mean, he's not exactly starting at the beginning, right? There's so many assumptions that he's making. Yes, yeah, he's doing that quite unapologetically. Boethius begins with the assumption, like, basically, it's like, okay, take Aristotle and Plato. That's a given, right? That That's where we start. Um, he's starting on that foundation. So he, 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 Boethius, the character Boethius, will talk about a monotheistic God in charge of the universe from the beginning. Uh, does this mean he's talking about the God of the Bible? Mm, Well, I mean, yes, Boethius is a Christian. He believes in the God of the Bible, but that's not what he's talking. That's, it's not in that way that he's talking about it. He's talking about the Platonic God. I mean, Plato would have agreed with the stuff that he said. The sort of premise of the consolation of philosophy is that he is taking for granted the things which, like, Plato and Aristotle would have agreed with, right? But he doesn't go beyond that. He doesn't quote the Bible. He's not basing his, uh, his, his reasoning, his argument on Christian theology. He's not basing it. Uh, on the Bible. He never quotes the Bible. It certainly never quotes the Bible uh, to back up any of the arguments that he's making. Um, so he is a Christian, but he doesn't quote the Bible. Um, the whole, again, the whole premise of what he's doing is let's think philosophically, just given the, the basic philosophical givens that everybody, right, Christians will agree with them, but the pagans will agree with them too, right? Non-Christians who, you know, but who are like down with Plato and Aristotle, they'll agree with these premises too. So he is deliberately starting on a kind of philosophical common ground, but he's not starting from ground zero. I mean, he doesn't start with like, is there or is there not a God? Let's think about that. Because that's not where, that's not, you know, again, if you, if you accept, uh, you know, Plato, that's not where you're going to start, right? You're going to start with the existence of a monotheistic God as, uh, as Plato teaches. So that's, uh, that's, that's the, the context. So when he talks about God, um, he, he means, uh, he's not speaking figuratively or something. He's, he is speaking as a Christian, but not just speaking to Christians. In fact, the kind of, uh, I don't know, ecumenical framework of the consolation of philosophy has prompted a bunch of modern scholars uh, to ask the question, like, is Boethius even Christian at all? There have been, you know, people, uh, you know, throughout the 20th century who have maintained that Boethius is, you know, can't really be a Christian because if he were a medieval Christian, he'd be using the Bible. He'd be quoting the Bible to back up his claims. Um, I, I agree with C.S. Lewis's response to that. I like Lewis. I do not believe that at all. I, I you know, it, we have every reason to believe that the Boethius who wrote that uh, treatise on the Trinity is the same dude who wrote the Consolation of Philosophy. Um, so that's fine. Um, 
I, I, I don't see any reason not to believe that. The mere fact that he doesn't quote the Bible doesn't, to me, call into question uh, of whether or not he's a Christian. Again, I love how, how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said that if... Uh, if you said to Boethius, like, well, dude, are you really a Christian? Because you're not, you know, if you're, if you're really a Christian, why aren't you quoting the Bible? Uh, Lewis said, I think that Boethius would say, didn't, didn't you read the title of the book, right? It's called The Consolation of Philosophy, right? So I'm sticking to that. This, the Consolation of Theology would be a different book, right? It's not the book I'm writing. I'm writing The Consolation of Philosophy. Um, so anyway, yeah. I, I think that that's uh, uh, that's a, 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 a really important thing. Exactly. Stephen Cover says it's all in Plato, all in Plato. Yes, exactly, exactly. Just think like Professor Kirk. Uh, uh, if, if you have if, if you have any questions about that, um, yeah, good. Um, oh, so uh, uh, Sharon, great question about uh, uh, the middle the Middle Ages and the Greeks. So okay. Um, Keep in mind, this is still very early, right? So, I mean, Boethius is, like, kind of medieval. He's he's in that gap, sort of, right? When the classical period is kind of over and the medieval period hasn't kind of begun, uh, you know, it's uh, sixth century is one, which is kind of like, uh, you know, for for Western Europe is, is kind of falls into a hole uh, in, as far as, like, modern classifications are concerned. Um it was before. It is true that throughout the rest of the Western Middle Ages, they lost Greek. Like people couldn't read Greek. You know, go to the eleventh, twelfth century. People can't read Greek. Um, therefore, nobody's read Homer in the original. I mean, all they they know about Homer because they read about him in Latin poets. Right, the Latin poets talk about Homer all the time, so they know about Homer. Actually, the the, the medievals have a really interesting relationship with Homer because uh, on the one hand. Uh, on the one hand, they've read all the Latin poets who revere Homer, right? And so they sort of accept on authority that Homer is the greatest poet who ever lived because all the Latin poets say so. But they've never read his poetry. They can't read his poetry. In fact, all they really had was a prose translation uh, of, uh, of Homer, which wasn't very good, in fact. Uh, so they're looking at this and they're like, this isn't actually all that good, but, you know, Virgil says it's awesome, so I guess it's awesome. And it was, it was, as it, it was awkward. It was really awkward. Um, but uh, in, in addition, of course, they, 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 they didn't have a lot of Plato. They didn't have a lot of Aristotle. They only had a few things that, that were translated into Latin and survived. And guess who translated a bunch of them? Boethius, in fact. Uh, he did a Latin translation of, like, all <laughs> of Plato. I mean, he's, I'm telling you, super scholar was Boethius. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Marielle says, uh, uh, hence why Dante considers Ulysses a villain. Yeah, exactly. Because he's primarily reading, Aene- reading the Aeneid, right? In which, in which Ulysses, uh, you know, Odysseus, is, is definitely a villain. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yes, Tomas, that is absolutely in the West. Greek Byzantium is still up and running. I'm talking about Western, uh, Western Europe when I'm talking about the Greek stuff. Um, anyway, okay. So let's... Uh, uh, I, a couple. So again, so that's the sort of Christianity debate. So again, the thing to remember here: Boethius is a Christian, but he's writing 
within, in a sense, within a pagan context, or at least, as I said, within a kind of a neutral context, though with the assumptions, uh, sort of granting the assumptions, not of the Bible, but of pagan authority, right, of, 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 of pagan philosophy. Um, one, one side note, one personal note I want to make before we, we dig into, uh, into the text. This is a book about suffering, Right, the 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 place where Boethius begins, of course, as you will have noticed uh, in uh, in this text, the place where Boethius begins is why do bad things happen to good people? Right, um, like what? Why does the world suck? Why does why why does why does all this bad stuff happen? And I I want to kind of take a moment to be serious about that. I suspect that during the course of a lot of these discussions, you know, of our of our of our classes here that we're going to step on toes, right? You know, there are going to be moments, I think, you know, places when perhaps Boethius, especially if you are going through something really hard in your life right now, there are going to be times when this book might sound kind of heartless and cold. Um, and, and, and you might even feel angry or, or offended um, or disgusted reading it. Again, going through what you're going through. The thing that I would ask you to remember when, if that comes up, if you find yourself thinking or feeling that way, remember that Boethius himself is really suffering when he writes this. This is not somebody, you know, sitting with his feet up on a patio, drinking chilled drinks, uh, and theorizing about suffering that he hasn't experienced. Um, Boethius is writing this in prison. Uh, he has been falsely accused. Well, he maintains it's I'm not going to stand judgment on him but he maintains he was falsely accused I see no reason not to believe him um he's he was falsely accused and he is uh he's he is he is in exile all of his possessions has been have been stripped away from him he doesn't know what's happening to his family back home and he is in fact going to be executed in prison not too long after he writes this book so he is there's there's legitimate suffering and under the shadow of imminent death. Uh, the traditional uh, story is that Boethius is bludgeoned to death. So they're going to come in, they're going to they're gonna beat his brains in with clubs fairly soon after he finishes writing this book. So um, if you, again, like if, if you, if, if you find yourself thinking like, well, it's easy for this guy to say all this stuff and to say it like this, right? Just remember, not necessarily. It's not, uh, you know, it, if you're going through something really hard, don't forget, Boethius feels you, right? Um, and it's not, it is exactly for people. If you're, if you're going through something tough, it's exactly for people in your situation that he was writing, and, and he was writing as somebody who knew. Um, so if it helps, remember that. The other thing, even more personally, there are places when I might sound heartless and flippant. Um, if you've taken any of my classes before, you'll know that, you know, it's kind of my style to be, uh, you know, there's something kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of hobbitish in my own style, uh, you know, especially making light of serious things. Um, I'm going to be laughing and joking about things. And there may be times over the course of this class when, Again, you might be tempted to say, well, to say of me, not just of Boethius. Well, that's easy for him to talk like that about stuff. Um, I get it. I mean, I, 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 uh, I, 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 I will try to, to be, first of all, know if I do make you feel that way, I'm sorry. I don't intend that. Again, I know this is, this is, these are really serious things that we're going to be talking about. 
it is my way to talk about serious things uh, in uh, a not always deadly serious way. Um, This is my way when I'm dealing with my own suffering and with the suffering of people around me. And if it helps, um, I was struck with the... uh, Honestly, this class was the first thing that flashed across my mind yesterday. 24 hours ago. Well, okay. 28 hours ago. Yesterday evening. Um, I learned that a very close family member of mine uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, And the first thing that I thought was like, and I'm starting to teach Boethius tomorrow. Um, Again, if you're going through something, I feel you. I do. Um, And and, and I hope that you won't be uh, offended or find me too, too... blasé uh, in talking about this stuff. So there's my double disclaimer. And again, I hope that, uh, that things will, that things will be okay. Um, one last final note, uh, just kind of mechanical stuff. Cause I want to make sure you all know is because again, whenever I'm starting a new session, I don't know if there are some new people here. Uh, I think there was at least, I saw, um, I saw notes from at least one new person, uh, on here. Um, so, uh, this is an interactive class. Um, I'm not interacting with anybody audially because that gets really complicated, especially when I'm simulcasting it in three different places at once. If you are in GoToWebinar, type your questions in the comments or in the questions box and I'll get them in real time. So I see, I see the stuff that you're, thank you guys for uh, uh, your uh, well wishes for my family. I, it's, it should be, it's, I mean, it's, it's as, as, cancer diagnoses go, it wasn't awful. I mean, it wasn't as bad as it could possibly be. Um, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, you know, it's still what it is, right? Um, anyway, so thank you. I see those comments and, and, and I appreciate those. Uh, if you are watching on Twitch, I, uh, I, I have the Twitch chat open too, so I should be able to see that as well. Uh, if you are watching on Twitter, I have my Twitter open too, and I should be able to see... T- so if you mention me, I should be able to see tweets there. I think there are little comments that come up on my phone, but it's pretty far away. I'm going to be like squinting up there to see them. Um, so better thing to do would be to mention me on Twitter, and I'll probably see that, I think. But as I said, this is the first time I've ever done a Twitter Live, so I don't exactly know how that works. We'll see, I guess. All right, with all of the uh, um, preambles out of the way, let's, uh, let's get into the text. What's Wrong with the World is the title of today's episode as we look at book one. This is sort of my paraphrase. You know, I, I said, why do bad things happen to good people is sort of the core issue, right? The core dilemma that Boethius is, is facing. Really, of course, there should be an if clause in front of that, right? If the universe is governed by a good and just God, comma, why do bad things happen to good people, right? That's, that's, that's sort of the, the, the dilemma that's at the heart of book one that Boethius is wrestling with. Um, what's wrong with the world uh, is sort of another, like, uh, just kind of another shorter way of putting that. If the world, again, if the world is, is ordered by a good orderly God, why is it so messed up, right? Why does this stuff happen? So anyway, okay, let's, uh, let's 
And yes, Marielle, you caught me. Uh, and Julie as well. It is also, of course, uh, the title of a G.K. Chesterton book. I'm, uh, I love Chesterton. I'm in the middle of a, uh, a systematic Chesterton read. I'm, I'm, I've decided to go through it. I'm, I'm reading almost all of Chesterton this year. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm up to uh, uh, All Things Considered right now. I'm reading All Things Considered. So yeah, I, I do have G.K. Chesterton on the brain, uh, so that might come out sometimes. Well, well spotted, you two. Um, okay. So, uh, let's go. Let's, uh, punch the clock, guys. Here we go. Slide number one. This is the first poem. Remember I mentioned, well, you, do, you, won't if you're, you won't remember it if you're new. The translation that I am drawing from is the Richard Green translation, which I was delighted to find is in uh, iBooks, actually, very cheaply available in iBooks if you want an, if you want an e-book copy. Um, I, this is a good, simple, modern translation. Uh, the poetry is translated into prose. This is poem number one. Of course, the structure of the book is a really interesting structure, and we'll talk about that because, of course, the characters themselves will discuss it. It'll come up uh, almost immediately over the course of the book. It goes back and forth between poetry and prose. And uh, uh, the the English translation that I'm using uses a prose translation of the poetry. That might possibly surprise you, like, right? I'm Mr. Like, let's not skip the poetry, and, and like, why would I choose a prose translation? It's actually out of respect for the poetry that I choose a, a prose translation. I really dislike... Um, you can do okay doing just, like, a blank verse or something transla- translation, um, but any English translation that tries to make, like, a you know, a an English metrical and especially rhyming verse out of another poem, it's it's doing more violence than it is doing justice to the text because you're not you can't translate the poetry. And by imposing upon it English metrical forms, you're just gonna push it further away from what the original was. It's not like you're capturing the original poetry, right? So if you if you wanna get the poetry from Boethius Read the Latin, right? That's what you need to read to get the poetry. It's the only place you're going to be able to get the poetry. So let's not look at... Uh, so this is why the P.D. James translation, the one that's in the public domain, totally fine translation. It's a 19th century translation, and you can read lots of 19th century rhyming couplets, which is what he translates the, uh, the, the poetry into. It's not awful, but I, just, I would rather... Since we can't get the poetry because we're not reading it in Latin, uh, I would rather make sure that we just get the sense of what he's saying in the poetry as much as we can. And the, 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 the most faithful way to be able to do that is through a prose translation. So I had that little rant last uh, time as well. But, um, uh, but there we go. Michael Cheskowski Ch- says, isn't Tolkien's poetry translated from the Elvish? Wise guy. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, okay. Um, so this is the first poem. This is the entirety of the first poem. I, who once wrote songs with keen delight, am now by sorrow driven to take up melancholy measures. Wounded muses, tell me what I must write, and elegiac verses bathe my face with real tears. Not even terror could drive me from these faithful companions of my long journey. Poetry, which was once the glory of my happy and flourishing youth, is still my comfort in this misery of my old age. Old age has come too soon with its evils, and sorrow has commanded me to enter the age which is hers. My hair is prematurely gray, and slack skin shakes on my exhausted body. Death 
happy to men when she does not intrude in the sweet years, but comes when often called in sorrow, turns a deaf ear to the wretched and cruelly refuses to close weeping eyes. The sad hour that has nearly drowned me came just at the time that faithless fortune favored me with her worthless gifts. Now that she has clouded her deceitful face, my accursed life seems to go on endlessly. My friends, why did you so often think me happy? Any man who has fallen never stood securely. All right. Um, So, what do we see here uh, in his initial poem? First of all, we see he is a poet, right? Notice what he says about poetry, right? Poetry, which was once the glory of my happy and flourishing youth, is still my comfort in this misery of my old age. Now, notice also, when he talks about youth and age there, I mean, he's doubtless speaking of his actual chronological age, but you notice how he seems to in, to sort of indicate two epochs in his life, right? Uh, I, one gets the feeling, at least I get the feeling, that my happy and flourishing youth, he's not like, oh yeah, you know, 25 years ago I used to love poetry, right? No, uh, it's just like before he was exiled, right? Because um, uh, notice when he talks about old age there in, in, uh, uh, in what Green has given as the second paragraph here in his prose translation, um, Old age has come too soon with its evils, and sorrow has commanded me to enter the age which is hers. Right? He has entered the 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 the, the age of old age and sorrow. Um, his hair is prematurely gray. So notice he's not talking about age. He's not talking about like as I have gotten older. Right? No, he's talking about his hair being prematurely gray. His body is exhausted. His skin is slack. So he has the evils of old age, right? But that doesn't mean he's ancient. Um, and when he's talking about his happy and flourishing youth, I'm not at all convinced that he's talking about the time when he was young, right? Um, I think that he's talking about the time that he was happy. Exactly. As Muriel points out, he died when he was 44. So we're not talking about uh, an ancient person. And and by the way, don't be, uh, don't, uh, don't, don't. One thing that people say about uh, older times, the, you know, the uh, antiquity and and, uh, and the Middle Ages, people talk about the life expectancy and be like, yeah, but the life expectancy was only 30, so 40 was pretty old. No, it wasn't. 40 was middle-aged. You were expected to live to 70. It's just that most people didn't. Remember, the life expectancy statistics are thrown off by the fact that a huge percentage of people don't survive the age of one. I mean, infant mortality was high childhood mortality. I mean, if you made it to 18, you won the lottery in the old world, okay? So uh, that kind of throws off the numbers a little bit. Um, Again, I've heard some people talk like, oh yeah, a 40-year-old person would have been considered ancient. No, no. A 70-year-old person would have been considered ancient. Uh, Remember, even in the even in in the Bible, it says that, you know, the the days of a man's life are three score and ten, right? 70 uh, is, uh, is, is old age. Uh, again, in uh, in those days. So anyway, yeah. So so right. We're not we're not talking about old old age. So his his talking about youth and age here is a way for him to sort of indicate these two different periods of his life. Right. Uh, that now he he is he is he is a, he's emotionally erect. He's physically erect. Right. He has been he's been uh, he he has been ruined. And what does he have left? Nothing. Death won't even come to him. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, it's. People who are happy are glad when death leaves them alone, right? He is calling out for death uh, to, 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 to close his weeping eyes, right? He just wants relief from his suffering, and death won't come to him cruelly, right? Uh, 
cruelly refuses to come and close his weeping eyes. Um, but he has poetry, right? Uh, and again, notice his relationship with poetry back there in that first paragraph. He is driven by sorrow to take up melancholy measures, right? So his relationship with poetry is constant, but the kind of poetry, of course, that he writes is changing, right? He has to take up melancholy measures now, right? He's got to write elegiac verse because everything's awful now, right? So that's where he is beginning. I used to write happy poetry. Now I'm writing sad poetry, right? Happy poetry. Um, People used to do that prior to the 20th century, write happy poetry, I mean. Um... It hasn't been very popular in the last hundred years or so. You don't get all that much happy poetry these days, but there it is. Um, so his <clears throat> his life has shifted from that happy and flourishing youth to the misery of old age, of his old age, um, but poetry is still his comfort, at least. He, he still has that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, uh, Matt, you're right. It is really the Invocation of the Muse is really surprising, right? Um, uh, the Invocation of the Muse... So he invokes the Muses, which is not surprising at the beginning of a poetic work like this, right? Um, but Matt is pointing out how odd it is that he he suggests the, the, the Muse itself is wounded. Wounded Muses. Tell me what I must write, right? Like the, the Muses themselves are wounded. Um, Matt, the sense that I get from that Right is oh good Lee Smith was just noticing exactly the same thing. Um, it's uh, it's like he he <clears throat> to me this sounds like an expression of the relationship with poetry that he's describing. Right, he is so tight with the muses they they are suffering with him. Right. They're not merely there to help him, you know, he, you know, to turn to them now in his time of grief as they were with him uh, during his happy and flourishing youth. They also are suffering, right? He is wounded. The muses, um, uh, the muses are, are wounded with him, right? Um, so that's really interesting. And then, um, uh, yeah, um, Kay... That line, and I haven't talked about that final paragraph yet, but yeah, surely he who hath fallen, um, uh, yeah, that that uh, my friends, why did you so often think me happy? Any man who has fallen never stood securely, right? That's, um, this is where the poem ends, right? So we we get that youth and old age thing, right? I've passed from youth into old age. I'm on the edge of death, even though death won't come yet, right? But notice the problem that it has, right? What, what are the wider implications? It's not just that I've passed from happiness to grief, right? In passing from happiness to grief, all of my previous happiness has now been called into question, right? What did it matter? What good was it, right? Um, the sad hour that, that has nearly drowned me came just at the time that faithless fortune favored me with her worthless gifts, Right, so here I was, pumped up with good fortune. Right, I was at my happiest. I would have said, "Everything is awesome," and then I fell. Then everything went downhill. Right, overnight, from happy and flourishing youth to the misery of old age. Right, which just shows you 
if that could happen, I never stood securely at all, right? It's not just that I've lost happiness. It's that I now recognize I was never actually happy, right? Because it was so insecure. I didn't realize how insecure it was, but now I do, right? Um, why did you, my friends, why did you think me happy? Because obviously I wasn't. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, Michael's pointing out that it sounds uh, a lot like Job. Certainly does sound a lot like Job. There are definitely, definitely some similarities there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's a good thing he still has the muses, right? I mean, things would be pretty bad if he didn't, if he didn't at, least has his, at least have his poetry, but let's all be grateful that he has that, right? First prose section. While I, was, while I silently pondered these things and decided to write down my wretched complaint, there appeared, standing above me, a woman of majestic countenance, whose flashing eyes seemed wise beyond the ordinary wisdom of men. Her color was bright, suggesting boundless vigor, and yet she seemed so old that she could not be thought of as belonging to our age. Her height seemed to vary. Sometimes she seemed of ordinary human stature. Then again her head seemed to touch the top of the heavens. And when she raised herself to her full height, she penetrated heaven itself, beyond the vision of human eyes. Her clothing was made of the most delicate threads and by the most exquisite workmanship. It had, as she afterwards told me, been woven by her own hands into an everlasting fabric. Her clothes had been darkened in color somewhat by neglect in the passage of time, as happens to pictures exposed to smoke. At the lower edge of her robe was woven a Greek pie. Uh, a Greek pie. At the top, uh, sorry, at the top the letter theta, and between them were seen clearly marked stages, like stairs, ascending from the lowest level to the highest. This robe had been torn, however, by the hands of violent men, who had ripped away what they could. In her right hand, the woman held certain books. In her left hand, a scepter. Okay, this is a classic piece of medieval allegory, right? Um, uh, quick note there, Nick Marazzo, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Nick notices that both death and fortune are female. Uh, Nick, what you'll notice is almost everybody is female uh, in allegories like this, and there's a very simple reason for that. Um, the when uh, when an abstract quality or concept is being personified in this way in a personification allegory the gen the sex of the character who is personifying that uh idea uh is generally determined by the gender the grammatical gender of the noun in the language that uh, that they're dealing with right and if you know any latin you'll know almost all abstract nouns are feminine um you know, Victoria, Fortuna, almost all of them, almost every single one of them are feminine. Um, so whenever you're doing a, a personification allegory where you're personifying abstract concepts, girls, as far as the eye can see, this sometimes has an almost comical effect. As for instance, uh, one of the, the most famous early allegories, uh, 
personification allegories uh, is a work called The Psychomachia by Prudentius. And the Psychomachia literally means the battle of the mind or the battle of the soul. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a personification allegory with the virtues on the one hand and the vices on the other hand, and they, they meet in battle. Uh, and it's pretty awesome. I love many of the confrontations in the, uh, in the Psychomachia. Uh, my favorite, I think, is between wrath and patience. Uh, <laughs> wrath and patience meet in the middle of the field. And and wrath is like, she's going crazy. She's got this huge sword and she's jumping all over the place and waving and like drooling and everything. And she's completely mad. Uh, and Patience is sort of standing there. She doesn't even do anything. She stands there looking at her and waiting and waiting. And eventually wrath stabs herself and falls over dead. And Patience is just like, my work is done here. <laughs> it's so awesome. But anyway, all of them are women. Every combatant in the battle uh, are women. It's like it's, uh, it's it's a completely female army on both sides because all of the vices and virtues are all are all feminine. So anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 what it's it's what happens in these kinds of personification allegories. Um, anyway, so okay, so so I guess so thanks for for pointing that out. Um, okay, so. Um, Oh, other questions I was just getting to. Oh, yeah. So, so the uh, so the description. Notice that there are places where Boethius will kind of give us the the clue, right? Will sort of help us to 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 see what the um, uh, the actual um, allegorical thing means. Like her color, right? Her color was bright, suggesting boundless vigor. He tells us, right? So he he tells us what 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 the brightness means, right? Um, Yet she seemed so old that she could not be thought of as belonging to our age. So she is, uh, she is, she is ageless, right? She doesn't look old. I mean, she's not like you know white-haired and stuff. Um, but she, she, she looks like she, you know, she, she doesn't belong. She, she transcends our own age. Um, her height seems to vary. Sometimes she seems of human stature, right? Philosophy, like the, the philosophy of human life and human morals and human actions, right? And then sometimes to the top of the heavens and then penetrating into heaven itself, right? As philosophy is capable of, uh, of, of reaching up into the most, uh, most lofty and abstract things. Um, uh, the pi and theta, yes. So the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the lower edge of her robe is the pi uh, and at the top is the theta, uh, and these stand for uh, basically practical and theoretical philosophy. Um, practical philosophy is the lowest level, sort of the 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 simplest level of philosophy. Theoretical philosophy uh, is the highest and loftiest uh, uh, one, and so you've and, and you've got the steps like a ladder in between, right? Um, but her robe is torn, right? Because people, the hands of violent men, have ripped away portions of her. Uh, uh, of her robe, of course, this this gets gets explained, right? As for instance, the Stoics and the Epicureans have have seized on a part of Lady Philosophy's robe, right? And they go around saying that this little fragment that they ripped off is the entire thing. But of course, they don't they don't have all of philosophy; they only have a piece of it, right? That's his little dig at the Stoics and the Epicureans, who he doesn't think uh, really are getting the. Uh, the the same thing, Stephen. I don't think we are told exactly what the certain books are that she has in her hand. Uh, but of course, the objects in her hands are important. She's holding certain books in her hand, Stephen. I think in general, 
remember what I was saying about the beginning about sort of the givens that he starts with? I think that's kind of one of the things that we're sort of seeing, like, okay, we've got certain books, right? You know, uh, like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe she's got Boethius's translation of Plato, right? I don't know. Um, but, um, but in her left hand, she's holding a scepter. So we see the authority of philosophy, right? Uh, the power. Uh, <laughs> Kay suspects that at least one of the book is probably an anachronistic copy of the Silmarillion. Conceivable, I suppose. Probably not. Uh, Mallory and Shakespeare, says James. <laughs> probably not that either. Um, okay. All right. So Lady Philosophy appears. When she saw the muses of poetry standing beside my bed and consoling me with their words, she was momentarily upset and glared at them with burning eyes. Who let these whores from the theater come to the bedside of this sick man, she said. They cannot offer medicine for his sorrows. They will nourish him only with their sweet poison. To kill the fruitful harvest of reason with the sterile thorns of the passions, they do not liberate the minds of men from disease, but merely accustom them to it. I would find it easier to bear if your flattery had, as it usually does, seduced some ordinary dull-witted man. In that case, it would have been no concern of mine. But this man has been educated in the philosophical schools of the Eleatics and the Academy. Get out, you sirens. Your sweetness leads to death. Leave him to be cured and made strong by my muses. Okay, so this sounds like a pretty big anti-poetry rant, right? So I guess, all right, um... Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, Emily, you're getting the impression that Lady Philosophy doesn't like the muses very much, right? She seems to have issues there with the muses. Um, definitely, definitely does. Um, so, but you see what the problem is, right? Um, notice the thing that she emphasizes, first and foremost, right? They cannot offer medicine for his sorrows. They are not going to help. Remember, he was all like, oh, I'm so glad I have the muses with me, right? Uh, Poetry shall be my comfort as as it has been my joy in times past. And she's like, no way, man. It's not going to help. There's no medicine in the muses. It's not going to make you better. All it will do is poison you. It's going to nourish you only with sweet poison, appearing to nourish uh, uh, with something pleasing, but ultimately something that's not only going to not do you any good, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to hurt you. It's going to destroy you, right? Uh, you think you're getting medicine, you're actually getting poison. So what, how, what, what's wrong with the muses? What do they do? They kill the harvest, the fruitful harvest of reason with the sterile thorns of the passions. Okay, so all it's doing is feeding your emotions, right? You're upset, Boethius. I see that you're upset, right? And the muses, are the muses help? No. Did you listen to that poem that you just made, right? They're not making you less upset, right? You're just getting worked up. What's that going to bring you, right? What is going to be the fruit of being worked up, right, of your emotions? Her answer, nothing. There's not going to be a fruit of your, uh, of your emotions, it's not going to bear fruit. They are sterile. The passions are sterile thorns. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, Michael, not only pleasure without substance, pleasure with harm, right? With damage, poison, right? Um, so you're just escaping doing anything productive. What do we put against the passions, right? Reason, right? Reason will bear a fruitful harvest. So let's set aside the passions. Stop working yourself up. 
right? Muses out, get out. So is this, um, is this an anti-poetry statement, right? Poetry is bad. Poetry is just, is just, uh, you know, caters to the passions and has nothing to do with reason. No. Notice what she says at the very end. Leave him to be cured and made strong by my muses. Um, now, that might sound sort of um, uh, metaphorical. You know, like, uh, okay, so the muses of, of poetry were there, you know, uh, uh, out of the way, you know, girls, I'm stepping in, right, into your place. So I'm going to take, in the sense that she's taking the place of the muses then. But I don't think that's what she means. Because, of course, what's she going to do right after this? She's going to speak poetry, right? Lady Philosophy does a lot of poetry in this book. We're going to go back and forth between prose and poetry all the way through. Boethius, uh, the Boethius character, uh, speak... By the way, okay, so vocabulary. When I say Boethius says, I'm going to be talking about the character in the story, right? Now, and we have to re- recognize the Boethius interlocutor, right? The the Boethius character who is having the conversation with Lady Philosophy isn't exactly identical to the Boethius who's writing the book, right? Um you know, to think of this as a, like a holy spondy, like this is just him recording what really happened or something like that. Of course, that's not exactly how it works. Obviously he is talking about his own real condition and everything. It's clearly relevant, right. To him, but it's not exact, but again, it's, it's, it's not safe uh, to just sort of say that they're exactly the same thing. Uh, I will try to make the distinction clear when I'm talking about what the author of the book is trying to emphasize, uh, rather than when I'm talking about what the character is trying to emphasize. Um, so, but it's kind of tricky when they're both sort of the same person. So most of the time when I say Boethius says, or Boethius or she says to Boethius, I'm referring to the character. Uh, if you get confused, please tell me and I'll, I'll try to be better about, uh, about clarifying what I'm, what I'm talking to. Um, James, it is okay if you're dull with it, right? I mean, if you, if, uh, if, if you ain't got it, what are you going to do, right? Uh, uh <laughs> she takes offense because he is one of hers, Right. He, Boethius, has been trained in her, in her school. She's not going to let him go, right? Um, if you don't know any philosophy, right, if your reason has never been trained, if you don't know this stuff, you can't be blamed for not taking consolation from it, right? Um, she's saying he shouldn't be here, right? He shouldn't be in this space, this headspace, right? He should not be reacting like this. He should know better. Because he's been trained by me. So I, philosophy, take offense at this, right? Uh, now I know, James, it might sound kind of, you know, elitist, right? To be all like, it's okay, you dull-witted people who don't have philosophy. You know, go ahead and hang out with the muses because it doesn't matter, right? But remember, it's also kind of why he's writing this book. And I personally think it's why he's writing the book in the way that he does. Um, again, by not writing this book in an explicitly Christian context and dealing with the Bible, he is making this book as widely applicable as possible. Um, and the way that uh, he, the author, has the Boethius character kind of play dumb all the way through this book, right? And need to be spoon-fed all of this stuff from the beginning uh, is, I believe, his way of sort of laying these things out in a way that's easy uh, to understand, even if you haven't had, even if you haven't been, uh, you know, one of um, uh, 
even if you haven't been educated in the in, in her philosophical schools, right? Um, so the end result of the book is in its way, therefore, sort of more democratic, uh, even though Lady Philosophy is definitely disti- uh, um, making a distinction here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so what do her muses have to say? Oh, by the way, I'm going to explain my... Uh, my citations down here. I try to make my citations so that you can, even if you're not using this translation, you can follow them. Uh, so this just means, so this is the book. And then after the, the dot, uh, PR one means, uh, prose section one. And then the, the numbers here are the page numbers in the edition that I'm using. Um, so this is book one prose one. And as you can see down here, we're going into book one poem number two, which is on page three of my edition. Um, so this is so her muses are kicking in now, right? Now we're going to get the poet, the, uh, the 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 poetry from Lady Philosophy himself. Um, oh, yeah, Marielle, uh, please, absolutely. Marielle is saying uh, he is a patrician Roman. He's going to be a little bit elitist. Absolutely. No, I'm not trying to say he's being democratic in the modern sense of democratic, um, but he is. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he he didn't. He didn't. You know. Uh, write this for all of the plebes and, and slaves and freedmen, but uh, he does. Uh, but but again, my, my my point is just that he he has targeted this at a broad audience, obviously uh, an educated audience, but um, but a broad audience. Anyway, okay, sorry. So here's her poem. Alas, how this mind is dulled, drowned in the overwhelming depths. It wanders in outer darkness, deprived of its natural light. Sick anxiety, inflated by worldly minds, swells his thoughts to bursting. Once this man was free, beneath the ocean heaven, and he used to run along heavenly paths. He saw the splendor of the red sun, the heaven of the cold moon, and any star that pursued its vagrant paths, returning through various spheres, this master understood by his computations. Beyond all this, he sought the causes of things, why the sighing winds vex the sea waves, what spirit turns the stable world, and why the sun rises out of the red east to fall beneath the western ocean. He sought to know what tempers the gentle hours of spring and makes them adorn the earth with rosy flowers, what causes fertile autumn to flow with bursting grapes in a good year. This man used to explore and reveal nature's secret causes. Now he lies here, bound down by heavy chains, the light of his mind gone out, his head is bowed down, and he is forced to stare at the dull earth. Okay, now notice um, notice the parallel between the first poem and the second poem, right? Remember, Boethius in poem number one was saying, oh, everything, I used to be my happy, right, my happy and prosperous youth, and now old age, right? Old age and all of its evils and miseries, right? So he was doing the sort of the before and after thing too, Right when fortune turned on him and he fell from his happy estate to the misery in which he currently stands, Lady Philosophy talks the same way. Right, once things had been good, now things are bad. But of course, you will immediately see the very great difference between what Boethius complains of and what Lady Philosophy complains of, and basically how they understand the suffering. Right, how they understand the state in which he finds himself, right? Um, He is talking about his circumstances, right? How fortune has turned on him, and now 
everything's horrible, right? He's lost everything and he's in prison and, and, and now, right, you know, he's in that misery. Notice what Lady Philosophy emphasizes, right? Um, he's wandering in outer darkness now. Deprived, you know, his mind is wandering in outer darkness, deprived of its natural light. Sick anxiety inflated by worldly winds swells his thoughts to bursting, right? Um, no, Carita, his mind isn't like a sail, it's like a balloon, right? Uh, his, 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 uh, thoughts are swollen, uh, puffed up by the winds of the world, by sick anxiety, right? Uh, because it's, it's ultimately it's empty, right? It's just air, but it'll still blow up your head, right? So, uh, that's, that's where he is. Um, and, uh, so this, 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 this is his problem. Once he was free, now he's not free, but she's not talking about his prison, right? She's not talking about his cell. She's talking about his mind. His mind used to be free. Now his mind is dulled, drowned, wandering, inflated, swollen to bursting, right? That's how it is now. Um, obviously she's going to expand on this more later. Um, but by the way, in this, we can see a trend that we're going to see at many points throughout the book. In the poems, we kind of get a, a, a glance ahead, right? She's going to come back and lay out in prose what she's pointing to in this poem a, a good deal later on in book one, right? But she's already suggesting what her diagnosis is. She's already saying in the first poem that she gives what she can see the problem is with him, right? She's going to give it in prose later on, um, but we see it first here uh, in the poetry. Um, okay, let's see. Sorry, another question here. Um, you know, it's interesting, Matt. He doesn't talk about... We don't get any details about the muse. He doesn't name a muse, for instance. Um it doesn't so it doesn't seem central like which muse or what set of muses uh is he talking about um the concept of muses seem to be associated i mean he 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 seems to be talking about poetry right um i say that because of the the comment that lady philosophy makes about her own muses right um so it's like the muses of poetry kind of generally understood they're clearly plural right there's more than one of them as uh, uh philosophy's kicking them out but uh, but he doesn't get any more specific about that. Um, and yet, uh, Nick is noticing that he's being described as drowned or drowning uh, 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 twice now. Yes, yes, that is already a, uh, a, a trend that we're seeing there. Um, okay, another thing to notice here. Um, when she thinks back to how his mind used to be, notice what she emphasizes. And this is something that is really, uh, it's important to notice this in order to kind of reorient our minds from the modern way of thinking about and categorizing things to a more ancient way of thinking and categorizing uh, things. Um, we think about, you know, the the philosophy department and, you know, the physics department or the astronomy department. Those are pretty different departments, right, in most institutions. <clears throat> you don't get that many faculty at a modern university uh, that, you know, teach in both the astronomy department and the philosophy department, right? That's just not normally a thing anymore. Notice what she's describing, 
right? When she is praising how his mind used to be, right? She says, once he was free, what did his freedom entail? What did that look like? He used to run along heavenly paths. Perhaps we might make the assumption to think that that means like, you know, contemplative uh, philosophy, right? Theology, thinking about God and, and, and how the heavens work and all these things. Um, no, she's talking about literally the heavens, the sky, right? The stars. She's talking about astronomy, right? She's talking about natural philosophy. Um, remember vocabulary. Uh, natural philo- What we currently call science is what until very recently, until the 19th century, they would have called natural philosophy, really through the 19th century. Um, what we call science, they would have called natural philosophy. Um, the word science, of course, is an old word, but it doesn't mean what we now use it for in the modern world. Science just means knowledge. It's a pretty generic term. Um, so, uh, uh, so I would encourage you not to be using the word, I'm going to try to avoid it, um, try not to use the word scientific, because the modern concept of scientific um, doesn't, uh, doesn't really relate. Uh, it can be a little bit misleading, I think. If we say, well, let's be scientific in considering this, we are, in a sense carrying on something of the tradition that she's describing here, right? Natural philosophy means applying a, you know, sort of rationally rigorous uh, form of analysis to your observations of nature, right? Notice what she describes here. He saw the splendor of the red sun, the heaven of the cold moon, any star that pursued its vagrant paths. What are we talking about? We're talking about vagrant stars, what are we talking? We're talking about planets, right? Planets are the wandering stars, uh, wandering in relationship to the other stars, right? Like the, the stars that make up the constellation Orion don't wander around. They move, but they don't wander in relationship to each other. Those are the fixed stars, right? The wandering stars, the vagrant stars are the planets because, you know, one month they're, they're in one place in the sky and another month they're in another place in the sky, right? Why does that happen? Right. Well, okay. We, you have to you have to make observations, right? And track and 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 figure that out, right? Natural philosophy. It's what you do. It starts with observation, and in that second paragraph, she describes his observations and computations based on what he sees, right? But but wait, there was more beyond this. He sought the causes of things. That's what a natural philosopher does, right? You observe, you make observations of nature, and then you say, what what are the causes? Right? What does this show? Uh, why do the winds vex the sea waves? Why does the world turn? Why does the sun rise in the east and fall in the west? He sought to know what tempers the gentle hours of spring, and makes the earth uh, and adorns the earth with why? Why? Why are there seasonal changes? Right? What is the what is the what is the natural ex- the physical explanation of this? Natural philosophy, right? So notice how she, she deals with these big things, right? Um, and it's fascinating to me that she starts off with natural philosophy. Um, he observes how the world works. Big, big picture. Notice how far beyond the question of his own life she's bringing him, right? She's starting him. Don't think about yourself, Boethius, right? Let's not start there. Remember the big picture? Remember how you used to think about the big picture? Remember all these observations that you made? Remember how orderly the world is, right? You've observed this. You've seen this. And you drew rational conclusions about why the world works like this. 
what, what are the explanations of it, right? What's the system that we can see? There is a system. You can see. It's so regular, right? You can map out the system and understand how these things work, right? That's what natural philosophy is. The world works dependably, right? So, so at the same time that she's describing the freedom of his mind and praising his philosophical inquiry and by implication sort of saying, wouldn't it be nice if we kind of get back to that kind of uh, way of thinking right now to free your mind into, into thinking, you know, coolly and clearly and analytically and making observations and drawing conclusions from them. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get back to that instead of this, your head being an inflated bag full of sick anxiety, right? Wouldn't that be better? Can we, can we go back to the fruitful harvest of reason instead of the sterile thorns of the passions? But she's doing more than that, right? The world, uh, she's also reminding him, by your own observations and conclusions, you could see the world is orderly. The world works. There's a system. It makes sense, right? Let's hold on to that. Let's remember that. Uh, this man used to explore and reveal nature's secret causes. Now he lies here, bound down by heavy chains, the light of his mind gone out. His head is bowed down, and he is forced to stare at the dull earth. Um, Kay is asking, does lamentation have no part in healing? Um, how can the heart heal that will not weep? Well, let's let's look at that. Look at we've seen her. Um, we've seen the um, Lady Philosophy's reaction to the muses, right, and to the to the passions and to the sort of the stirring up of the passions. Um, do they help at all? Right? Is there any help? Is there any? Uh, any fruit that lamentation can bear. Um, we'll see. He's not quite done lamenting, right? The muses might have been kicked out, but he's uh, he's still got some complaining he's going to do, right? He's he's he, he's still going to do some lamentation. Watch. We'll see her. We'll see her reaction here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, oh, uh, Stephen says is she talking about the planet rotating on its axis. Yeah. Yeah, they totally knew about that, Stephen. Not only did they know the world was round, they knew that the world rotated on its axis. And Stephen, not only that, they calculated the angle that the axis of the Earth has away from, uh, like, in relationship to the to the to the plane in which it it appears to rotate. Right? They knew that. Right? They calculated that based on the. They did great astronomy. They were really good astronomers uh, in the ancient and medieval world. Extremely careful astronomers. There's a lot they couldn't see because they didn't have telescopes. Right? Uh, so with the instruments that they, they they did an awesome job with the instruments that they had and the conclusion. I I I get really I get really steamed when people make fun of uh, the 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 old world the the geocentric worldview uh, and treat it as if it were just like primitive and stupid. It is a brilliant model, a brilliant observational model. Um, their model of the of the, the geocentric solar system is exactly, almost exactly right, like uncannily. Again, when you remember how poor their instruments were, it's almost exactly correct. Again, if you take the Earth as what Einstein calls your laboratory framework, right, if you take the Earth as your frame of reference and you 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 draw, you, you, you sort of show um, uh which uh, 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 you know 
what the the move the movement of the heavens looks like from our uh, frame of reference. That it's it's almost exactly like what they described. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, okay, I am getting into my defend the medievals mode. Uh, but anyway, okay. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Marla uh, uh, is pointing, thinking, you know, Kay, in response to your question, uh, uh, Marla is quoting, uh, 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 is quoting Proverbs to me. You know, they're, they're you know, to, to everything there is a season, right? There is a time to weep. Marla, what I would say there, see, he's not going there, right? He's not going to, he's, he's not going to go to the Bible. He's not, um, um, he's not, uh, uh, that's not where he goes, right? Uh, he's talking about reason and the passions. It's not how the Bible talks about this stuff. Uh, almost nowhere does the Bible talk about that stuff, right? Uh, in those terms, I mean. Uh, Sometimes, but not, not, not generally, right? It's not where it goes. Anyway, okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, let's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So keep going. Back to prose. But, she said, it is time for medicine rather than complaint. Notice this is the second time she's talked about medicine. He is sick. She is, she is, she, 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 she start, from the very beginning, right? From the very first thing she said, she shows the state that he is in is an illness and he needs medicine. He needs treatment. He needs healing. Okay. What's going to be, and, and Kay notice there's complaint and there's medicine, right? Um, you know, so, um, it's, she's only interested in the medicine fixing me with her eyes. She said, are you not he who once was nourished by my milk and brought up on my food who emerged from weakness to the strength of a virile soil, soul, soil, soul, I gave you weapons that would have protected you with invincible power if you had not thrown them away. Don't you recognize me? Why don't you speak? Is it shame or astonishment that makes you silent? I'd rather it were shame, but I see that you are overcome by shock. When she saw that I was not only silent but struck dumb, she gently laid her hand on my breast and said, There is no danger. You are suffering merely from lethargy, the common illness of deceived minds. You have forgotten yourself a little— but you will quickly be yourself again when you recognize me. To bring you to your senses, I shall quickly wipe the dark cloud of mortal things from your eyes. Then she dried my tear-filled eyes with a fold of her robe. Okay. Um, Being nourished by her, being brought from weakness to strength by her, being armed by her weapons, he would have been invincible. But he's fallen, right? But he's ill. Why? He threw the weapons away, right? Um, she wishes that he were ashamed, right? Because that would show that he was remembering himself and what he should have been doing and how he should have been thinking, right? But he's just shocked, right? Um, he doesn't recognize her, right? He can't see her. Why can't he see her? He can't see her first, she says, 
because his eyes are covered with the dark cloud of mortal things, right? I shall quickly wipe the dark cloud of mortal things from your eyes, right? Um, his eyes are covered with mortal things. He can't see her clearly, right? He can't see immortal truths. Uh, he's too clouded by mortal things. Um, but you notice what she's wiping from his eyes are his tears. Um, is weeping healing Kay? It doesn't sound like it, right? His weeping is here being at least symbolically connected, explicitly connected, you know, uh, again, symbolically, uh, with the dark cloud of mortal things, right? That's what's, you got a little something in your eye there, yeah? Oh, it's a dark cloud of mortality, right? Let me, let me, let me clear that up for you, right? And she wipes his tears. Um, so, you know, there's, um, uh, there's going to be, again, there's going to be more, but, uh, she doesn't really seem to have much interest, uh, in his tears, in encouraging his tears, you know, let it out, Boethius. No, that doesn't seem to be where she's going. Uh, James says, uh, the thoughts of his death. Uh, James, I think you're right to remember, uh, James Stevens, you're right to remember the, his talking about death and his calling out for death and his complaining that death wouldn't come for him, right? So, dark cloud of mortal things. But mortal doesn't just mean relating to death. Um, I, I know that's where the word comes from, right? But I think it's, it's, um, it's not just that. It's actually more than that as well. Um... Mortal things are well. We'll see. She'll talk more about mortal things uh, as we as we move on. Um, Rachel asks, "Is she referring to his unfortunate circumstances or his emotional state when she talks about the weapons that would have protected him?" Uh, emotional state. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, that's what she did from the beginning. He was like, "Oh, I used to be in good circumstances, and now I'm in bad circumstances." And she, in her poem, says, "You used to be free, and now you're in chains." Right. Uh, in other words, notice how she has like almost allegorized his actual, um, his actual uh, condition. Right? He's literally in chains. I mean, he's in prison. Right? He's in exile. Uh, he used to be free, and now he's locked up. And she's like, "Yeah, you used to be free, and now you were, and now you're locked up mentally. Right? Uh, your mind, and that's what she's." Uh, almost entirely focused on all the way through. Um, All right, let's keep going. Notice this piece of assurance that she offers. I'm um, um, I'm skipping into her next poem. This is her fourth poem. The serene man who has ordered his life stands above menacing fate and unflinchingly faces good and bad fortune. This virtuous man can hold up his head unconquered. The threatening and raging ocean storms which churn the waves cannot shake him. Nor can the bursting furnace of Vesuvius, aimlessly throwing out its smoky fire, nor the fiery bolts of lightning which can topple the highest towers. Why then are we wretched, frightened by fierce tyrants who rage without the power to harm us? He who hopes for nothing and fears nothing can disarm the fury of these impotent men. But he who is burdened by fears and desires is not master of himself." He throws away his shield and retreats. He fastens the chain by which he will be drawn. 
Okay, again, so this is a little bit more on the, you know, what does she mean by, uh, uh, you know, the freedom and chains and everything like that. Um, if you have, and, and, uh, and this is really, you know, Rachel, an answer to the question, you know, what does she, what does she mean about the weapons that would have protected him, right? This. Um, if you are serene and have ordered your life, Right. If you are if you are armed with the weapons of philosophy, you stand above menacing fate, and you unflinchingly face good and bad fortune. Right. You can hold your head up unconquered, if you are virtuous. If which is the same thing as saying if you are philosophy's child. Right. Nothing can shake you. The threatening and raging open uh, ocean storms. Remember the drowning imagery. Right. No chance of drowning. Right. The bursts of Vesuvius, right? Volcanoes exploding, not going to hurt you, right? Fiery bolts of lightning, not a problem. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can get to you if you have ordered your life, if you're a child of philosophy, right? Okay, that seems like hyperbole, but okay, right? But then notice what she goes on to say. Why are we wretched? Right? Why are we frightened by fierce tyrants who rage without the power to harm us? Because, I mean, like it's not like tyrants can do anything to us. Like, th- take all your stuff and throw you in prison and then execute you there. <laughs> right? Oh, wait. They kind of can do that, can't they? Um, what does she mean by these impotent men? They're impotent? They're They're powerless? I kind of thought that a tyrant was, like, by definition, not powerless, right? Not impotent. They can kind of do stuff, right? Like bad things to you, can't they? Um, no. Not according to philosophy, right? Not if you are have ordered your life. Not if you're a virtuous man. Not if you are a child of philosophy. But... If you throw away, they can't be taken from you, but if you throw away your shield and retreat, then you're fastening the chain by which you will be drawn, right? You're going to make yourself a slave. Okay, philosophy, let's see how you get there. Um, Notice how much Boethius is giving us here of where he's going to, right? Lady philosophy is sort of laying these things out. This is what I'm talking about, right? This is... This is where you should be. This is what your problem is. And uh, he... Um, but he's not ready for it yet. He's not really listening. He doesn't... He doesn't. Boethius doesn't pay all that much attention to the poems, it seems, especially in the early going here. Um, now, in prose again. Why are you crying? Speak out. Don't hide what troubles you. If you want a doctor's help, you must uncover your wound. Right? Show me where it hurts. Right? Let's let's see. Right? We gotta bandage the wound. Let me inspect the wound. Show me. I pulled myself together and answered. Do I have to explain? Isn't the misery of my misfortune evident enough? Right? I mean, you can see his point of view, right? She comes to him in prison, right? So he's in prison, he's lost everything, and she's like, So tell me, what's wrong? What's your what's what's the problem anyway? Right? And he's like, ah, dude, I'm in prison! How hard is that? Right? Um, I, I should think this place alone would make you pity me. I mean, look around here. I'm in prison here, people. Now, by the way, footnote. 
Um, Boethius, don't picture Boethius in a modern jail cell. He's not in a modern jail cell. He's in exile. He's been sent to an island, right? Uh, and he's been locked up in solitary confinement. Um, it's not a prison cell. It's not, it is, uh, so he's exiled away from home. He's, he is in fact locked up and kept under guard. Uh, but he's not, he's not in a modern penitentiary, right? So don't picture that. Um, picture house arrest under probably not very luxurious circumstances on a remote island, not a, not a, not a, like a deserted island in the middle of nowhere. It's, the, it's a, you know, an island where other people live, but far from where he lives or used to live. Okay. Uh, compare this prison with my library at home, which you chose as your own and in which you often discussed with me the knowledge of human and divine things. Did I look like this? Was I dressed this way when I studied nature's mysteries with you? When you mapped the courses of the stars for me with your geometer's rod? When you formed my moral standards and my whole view of life according to the norm of the heavenly order? Are these miseries the rewards your servants should expect? Notice how he throws the astronomy thing back to her, right? It's like, yeah, I remember that too. I remember when I used to do, do astronomy, right? When I was involved in natural philosophy. And notice how he also sees the connection between natural philosophy and moral philosophy, right? When you formed my moral standards and my whole view of life according to the norm of the heavenly order. Yes, I saw and observed the order of the world, the order of the universe, and, 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 and I could see how that order worked both in terms of the heavens, right? The physical world and the moral world as well, right? Yes, I saw all that. And what did it get me, huh? Huh? Where did I... Wait, here, prison, right? Is this the reward your servant should expect? So I thought maybe we had a deal. Right. I thought that I was your favorite child and that like you, you here you're saying like, oh, you're inviolate and like, you know, the tyrants are impotent and can't do anything to you. And it's like, I beg to differ, my friend. Here I am in prison. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, um, <laughs> yeah, Karina says she really she really liked this guy when he was like, "Do you see a library?" Because I don't, right? Yeah, exactly. And of course, Karina he's bringing up the library specifically uh, because, of course, that's where he he met philosophy, right? It was the books in his library. It was through the books in his library that he that he t- talked to her, right? That he became acquainted with Lady Philosophy, right? It's like. He's like, you lived in my library. That's where we met, right? We used to hang out at my library, and now look, right? No wonder I didn't recognize you. This is not your place, right? What do you have to do even with this place? Um, yeah, but so, so her question seems to him like a really stupid question, right? What's wrong? Show me your wound. Show me the problem, right? Now he's going to go on. Uh, he goes on for a long time. I'm not quoting the entire business, right, about, uh, you know, his, his complaint um, about how he got stabbed in the back uh, politically and wrongfully condemned. Um, this is kind of the tail end of it. Uh, he's talking about how could the king's judgment have been more severe? He's talking about the king's judgment against these other people, right? So there are these other guys that had been condemned by the king. Right, the king knew that they were corrupt and he had condemned them. And yet, on that very day, on the very day of their condemnation by the king, their testimony against me was accepted. 
right? So these guys condemned by the king for their un, for their untrustworthiness testified against Boethius on the day of their condemnation, and yet they were believed. I mean, like it's mind-blowing, right? Why should this have happened? Did I deserve it? Did their criminal records make them just accusers? Fortune ought to have been shamed, if not by the innocence of the accused, then at least by the villainy of the accusers. I mean, come on, right? Like, this, it doesn't make any sense at all. Just like the obvious, obvious injustice and wrong of the whole situation, right? Um, finally, what am I accused of? They say I desired the safety of the Senate. But how? I am convicted of having hindered their accuser from giving evidence that the Senate is guilty of treason. What is your judgment, my teacher? Shall I deny the charge in order to avoid shaming you? But I did desire to protect the Senate, and I always will. And how can I confess, since I have already stopped hindering their accuser? Shall I, so I didn't do I, Yes, I was, I supported the Senate, and I would continue supporting the Senate. Did I do anything unjust? Did I do anything wrong? No, I didn't do anything wrong, right? Shall I consider it a crime to have supported the integrity of the Senate? It is true that the Senate itself, by its decrees against me, has made my position a crime. So, okay, so what he did now is a crime, right? But it's only been made a crime by the precedent of the condemnation, condemnation of him, by the Senate, which he was defending. That was his crime in the first place, to defend the Senate, right? And now the Senate has passed a decree saying that what he did in defending the Senate is criminal, right? Oh, my goodness. But folly, driven by self-deception, cannot change the merits of the case. Nor, following the rule of Socrates, can I think it right either to hide the truth or concede a lie. I leave it to you and to the judgment of the wise whether my course of action is right. I have put this in writing so that posterity may know the truth and have a record of these events. Now, one thing I want... I know in this part, like, the Boethius character sounds a little bit self-righteous, right? It sometimes it might be a little bit hard to listen to the Boethius character be all like, I am so virtuous and I am completely justified. And I could forgive you if your reaction to this is like, man, do we need to sit down and have a talk, right? Are you fooling yourself? Maybe you're not as righteous as you actually think you are. I totally get that. Um, the thing that I would say is, although that's probably true, you know, it, it may well be the case. It's not the point, right? Uh, and this is what Lady Philosophy... Lady Philosophy is not going to... Notice the appeal that he's making to Lady Philosophy here, right? Judge. Confirm. Tell me. Do you think I'm, I'm innocent or guilty, right? Do you think what I did was wrong? I'd love to know, Lady Philosophy, right? Let me know your judgment on this, right? Because uh, he thinks that he's got a really good case, right? He thinks that he was railroaded and he's not going to say anything else about it. Okay, fine. Um, but you know what? It doesn't matter, right? Let's grant that. Okay, Boethius, fine. Because this is what Lady Philosophy is going to do. She's not even going to address this. She's not going to sit in judgment on his actions. She's not going to come back to him and be like, now, let's start off by recognizing that maybe we were not as good as we think we were. Right? She's not going to go there. Because it doesn't matter. It's not the point at all. Okay. Let him be totally virtuous. Let him have been completely uh, done wrong. Right? That's not what she's going to be concerned about at all. But he's concerned about it. So, okay. Let's accept, for the sake of the Boethius character's argument, let's accept the premise that he was the victim 
of rampant injustice, right? Um, yes, and Emil, you're absolutely right that Boethius, what Boethius sounds like is probably what we all sound like in our own heads. You're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, okay, anyway, so yes, absolutely good. But, but again, let's grant that. Let's not argue with him, right? Okay, assuming that Boethius is the victim of, of just complete injustice, right? So what? What does that show? Because this is his big concern. Yes, it, the, the irony of the fact that he was defending the Senate and then the Senate itself turned against him and the, 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 the villainy of the accusers, all that stuff, right? This was horrible, Boethius. I totally get it. But in a sense, it's not what happened to him that seems to bother him the most, right? And he's upset about being convicted and being in exile and all that kind of thing. But what's the real problem, Boethius? But I am not so discouraged by what has happened to me that I complain now of the attacks of wicked men against virtue. Uh, right? Notice he's saying, like, look, it's not exactly like I'm surprised that wicked people are attacking virtuous people, right? That happens all the time. In fact, you can kind of count on the fact that that's going to happen, right? I mean, obviously, fine. The reason for my surprise is that they have accomplished what they set out to do. So that wicked people would want to attack virtuous people totally normal, totally understandable. What's mind-blowing is the fact that they win. That shouldn't happen! The desire to do evil may be due to human weakness, but for the wicked to overcome the innocent in the sight of God, that is monstrous! Why does God let it happen? How could he do that? I cannot blame that friend of yours who said, if there is a God, why is there evil? And if there is no God, how can there be good? It is not surprising that evil men who want to destroy all just men and the Senate too should try to overthrow one who stood up for justice in the Senate. But surely I did not deserve the same treatment from the senators themselves. Right? Why did it... Why did they win? If there is a God, why is there evil? That's the real problem, right? Because look at the wider implications. I mean, he's he's still using his reason here, right? His, this is not... He's gotten past the pure, you know, merely the sterile thorns of the passions, right? He's not got the strumpet muses by his bedside anymore. Now he's... Uh, He's, he's, he's thinking through the logical implications of these things, right? This is a rational argument he's making. Finally, and this is the last straw, the judgment of most people is based not on the merits of a case, but on the fortune of its outcome. They think that only things which turn out happily are good. Right? So, okay, so see, this is, this is, this is the thing that really, that really burns his biscuits, right? It's bad enough that the bad guys win. That shouldn't happen. In a well-ordered world, which is ordered and run by a good God, that should not happen. But, but then you see what happens as a consequence of that, right? To sort of emphasize why that's such an abomination that that should happen. Everybody thinks that the people who won must be the good guys, right? That, that God is affirming them, Right? I mean, as a result, the first thing an unfortunate man loses is his good reputation. 
I cannot bear to think of the rumors and various opinions that are now going around. I can only say that the final misery of adverse fortune is that when some poor man is accused of a crime, it is thought that he deserves whatever punishment he has to suffer. Well, here I am, stripped of my possessions and honors, my reputation ruined, punished because I try to do good. It seems to me that I can see wicked men everywhere celebrating my fall with great pleasure, and all the criminally depraved concocting new false charges. I see good men terrorized into helplessness by my danger, and evil men encouraged to any risk, to risk any crime, with impunity, and able to get away with it by bribery. The innocent are deprived not only of their safety, but even of any defense. I mean, this is a horrible precedent, right? Is This is the way the world goes on? Uh, who's running this show? Philosophy, right? What kind of sense does this make? This is a problem. This is the problem of evil, and Boethius is feeling it keenly. So again, it's not just like, my life sucks and I hate it now, right? His life does suck and he does hate it now, but that's not the issue, right? His concern is the bigger concern, right? Uh, th- this is... Everything has been taken from him. Again, not just his possessions, even his reputation, but it's not just that, right? The, pr- the harm that this is going to do elsewhere and everywhere, right? Everyone who hears about this, um, they're going to think that those wicked men who brought the accusation were justified. Maybe they'll emulate them, right? Maybe they'll mistake their wicked actions for good actions, they assume that that virtuous Boethius was wicked, right? And so, therefore, they're not going to... Again, so, like, now, like, this is, like, chaos, right? Cats and dogs living together. Oh, my goodness. Um, this is tough, right? Um, now Boethius does another poem. The Boethius character, right? Nothing escapes your ancient law. He's addressing God now. Right? Nothing escapes your ancient law. Nothing can avoid the work of its proper station. You govern all things, each according to its destined purpose. Human acts alone, O ruler of all, you refuse to restrain within just bounds. Why should uncertain fortune control our lives? So, God, I get the fact that everything works according to your purpose. Right? I've seen it. I've mapped the stars. Right? Remember all the natural philosophy stuff. Right? I see that the world around us is an orderly system that you have ordered. Except people. Apparently you've made an exception when it comes to people. Human acts alone don't act according to the just system. Instead, uncertain fortune is left to control their lives. O ruler of all What's up with that? Harsh punishment deserved by the criminal afflicts the innocent. Immoral scoundrels now occupy positions of power and unjustly trample the rights of good men. Virtue, which ought to shine forth, is covered up and hides in darkness, while good men must suffer for the crimes of the wicked. Perjury and deceit are are not held blameworthy as long as they are covered by the color of lies. When these scoundrels choose to use their power, they can intimidate even powerful kings because the masses fear them. O God, whoever you are who joins all things in perfect harmony, look down upon this miserable earth. We men are no small part of your great work, yet we wallow here in the stormy sea of fortune. 
ruler of all things, calm the roiling waves, and as you rule the immense heavens, rule also the earth in stable concord. Right. Uh, can, uh, can we get this fixed down here, please? Right. Look at, look at what's happening. Right. Um, uh, oh God, you know, yeah, you who joins everything in perfect harmony, like almost everything in perfect harmony. Uh, can we fix the exception? Maybe, you know, is that so much to ask? Um, yeah. Philosophy's response. While I poured out my long, sad story, philosophy looked on amiably, quite undismayed by my complaints. Then she said, When I first saw you downcast and crying, I knew you were in misery and exile. But without your story, I would not have known how desperate your exile is. Now, remember his first response when she said, What's wrong? He's looking around like, What do you mean, what's wrong? I'm in exile. Don't you see the prison? Right? Does this look like my library? Right? Um, she's like, I knew you were in exile. Right? I, 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 I was aware. Right? But if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have known how badly you were exiled. Right? Remember he started off with, isn't it obvious? And she's like, no, it wasn't obvious. Now it's obvious. Listening to you talk, it's totally obvious now. Right? But, of course, the exile she's talking about is not his physical exile. She's not worried about the prison cell around him. She's worried about his mind, right? The prison of his mind that he has locked himself into. The exile. You have not been driven out of your homeland. You have willfully wandered away. Or, if you prefer to think that you have been driven into exile, you yourself have done the driving, since no one else could do it. Tough love from Lady Philosophy, right? Yeah, you've been exiled. You exiled yourself. Nobody did it to you, right? So wait, is she is she casting judgment on his actions and saying he wasn't? No, she's not talking about that at all. She's talking about his mind, right? He's all focused on the circumstances of his of the political scandal that brought him down. She doesn't even seem vaguely interested in that at all, right? Uh, he has wandered away willfully, or he's driven himself into exile. Because nobody else could have done it. Yeah. You're exiled, all right. But not only are you not sitting here the victim, which is how he's talking, right? Not only are you not the victim, but it's not even the the political exile. That's what really what really matters. Um, uh, yeah, Sharon, we're going to get to free will and fortune. It's going to take a while. She's, you know, Lady Philosophy, of course, explains he's not ready for sharp medicines yet. He needs some gentle treatment first. Uh, she's not going to get around to talking about free will until much later. It's not going to be till like, book five that we're going to finally get there. Uh, but we'll get there. Okay. What you have said about your merits in the Commonwealth is true. Your many services deserve even more than you claim. And what you have said about the truth or falsity of the accusations against you is well known to everyone. 
You were right to speak sparingly of the crimes and deceit of your enemies. Such things are better talked about by the man in the street who hears about them. You have sharply protested the injustice done you by the Senate, and you have expressed sorrow for the accusations against me and the weakening of my place in the public esteem. Right? Because, of course, it's kind of a scandal, right? He's supposed to be like, Mr. Philosophy, right? And now he's guilty of this. And so, like, oh, boy, you know, what has this done to the PR of philosophy, right? Oh, man. Finally, you protested against fortune in sorrow and anger and complained that rewards are not distributed equally on the grounds of merit. At the end of your bitter poem, you expressed the hope that the same peace which rules the heavens might also rule the earth. But because you are so upset by sorrow and anger and so blown about by the tumult of your feelings, you are not now in the right frame of mind to take strong medicine. For the time being, then, I shall use more gentle treatment, so that your hardened and excited condition may be softened by gentle handling, and thus prepared for more potent remedies. Right? Um, I love this. She's like, yes, okay, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're right, you're right, right? We're not even going there, right? I'm not going to argue with you about that. Yes, you were done wrong. Absolutely. Yep. No problems. Uh, uh, she just summarized everything and grants absolutely everything that he said. But notice, because you were so upset by sorrow and anger, and so blown about by the tumult of your feelings, you are not now in the right frame of mind to take strong medicine. Um, I see that we can... So, he's correct in his assessment, but he's wrong to be so upset about it. Right? Uh, the tumult of his feelings, right? Uh, the anger and sorrow. It's uh, it's too much, right? He can't. Ha- so we need to we need to back up a little bit, right? We need to we need to come at this gently. We can't just come at it directly. Okay, so what's what's the problem, Lady Philosophy? We're gonna finally get her diagnosis, right? And we're almost, uh, we're almost coming to the end. So we'll get to her diagnosis, and that's the end of book one. Do you think, she began... So, so, so she's going to ask him a series of questions, right, in order to, to ascertain more clearly. Uh, to, 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 uh, so this is like when the, um, when the doctor uh, takes your, your history, right, and asks you all these questions about how you're feeling and what's going on and are you experiencing these particular symptoms and stuff, and, uh, and you, you give them the data... And then from that, they, are, they sort of put these things together and do the diagnosis, right? That's exactly what Lady Philosophy is going to do. She, she's the doctor. That's the metaphor she's been using all the way through. She's the physician. Do you think that this world is subject to random chance? Or do you believe that it is governed by some rational principle? I cannot suppose that its regular operation can be the result of mere chance. Remember, stars, right? Natural philosophy. I've studied the world. I don't think that this is just random. Right, that's philosophy. That's Boethius, the Boethius character's answer. Right, indeed, I know that God, the Creator, governs His work, and the day will never come when I can be shaken from the truth of this judgment. That is true. Philosophy answered, and you said as much in your poem a while ago when you deplored the fact that only men were outside God's care. You did not doubt that all other things were ruled by reason. Strange, isn't it, that one who has so healthy an attitude should be so sick with despair? We must search further, because obviously something is missing. Tell me, since you have no doubt that the world is ruled by God, do you know how it is governed? I don't quite get the point of your question, so I am unable to answer. 
Ah, you see, I was right in thinking that you had some weakness, like a breach in the wall of a fort through which the sickness of anxiety found its way into your soul. Ah, okay. Now, she, so she's, she's found a symptom, right? Um, okay, yeah, so you, you, you know that the world is governed rationally, but you don't know how it's governed. Got it. Okay. All right, she says. Next question. But tell me, do you remember what the end or goal of all things is? The goal toward the goal towards which all nature is directed? I heard it once, I answered, but grief has dulled my memory. Well, do you know where all things come from? I answered that I knew all things came from God. How then, she went on, is it possible that you can know the origin of all things and still be ignorant of their purpose? But this is the usual result of anxiety. It can change a man, but it cannot break him and cannot destroy him. Right? So again, notice the same thing, right? He's not just totally clueless, right? He knows some stuff, but only some of the stuff, right? He remembers that the world is governed rationally, but he doesn't remember how it's governed. He knows that God is the origin of all things, but he doesn't know the goal toward which all things are directed. And she's like, how can you know the one and not the other? Right? Yeah. Okay. That's problem number two. So problem number one, he doesn't know how the world is governed. Problem two, he doesn't know where it's being governed to. What is the purpose, the goal of all of nature? Okay. Problem three. I want you to answer this too. Do you remember that you were a man? Kind of seems like a dumb question, right? How could I forget that? I answered. Well then, what is a man? Can you give me a definition? Do you mean that I am a rational animal and mortal? I know that, and I admit that I am such a creature. Now, notice, unpack his definition there. A rational animal and mortal. This is very important. He is placing man in the great chain of being, right? Man, uh, he's, he is, this is a good definition of man. Right? So, okay. Human beings have things in common with animals, right? They're basically animals, right? Or that is, they're very much like the animals in very, very many ways. Um, what do they share in common with animals? How are, how are human beings like animals? What do they have in common? <laughs> they have feet. Yes, that's true. Most animals, now some animals don't have feet, but bodies, yes. Okay, so their bodies are very similar, right? And of course, the the the, the things that uh, uh, the things that they do are very similar to most of the things that animals do, right? They eat and grow. They move around, right? They perceive the world around them. They desire things. Right, that's why you move around because you want something. You want stuff. You never even move. Right, that's an Aristotelian principle. Um, but uh, yeah, so so okay, so they 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 and and they reproduce. Nick, absolutely. Right, that's another important thing. Um, so uh, and also some really simple things like your body has structural integrity. That's another thing that you share in common with animals and indeed even with rocks. Right. Um, in the Middle Ages, they loved kind of breaking these things down, right? You have a mineral soul, like there are things that human beings have in common with rocks, right? Like structural integrity, uh, like attraction to the ground, right? 
That's another thing we share in common with rocks, but rocks don't do much else other than that, right? They have structure and they, they go to the ground when you drop them, but that's pretty much all they do. They're kind of boring. Uh, plants do more, right? Plants can grow and, uh, and reproduce, right? Uh, rocks can't do that, right? Rocks don't multiply and rocks don't grow, uh, but plants can do that. So can humans, right? So we have that in common. So we have the stuff in common with rocks. We can do all the things that rocks can do, but we can do more. We can do all the things that plants can do, but we can do more, right? Animals can do more than plants, right? They can move around. They can perceive things. Uh, The senses are really, really important, right, in how they understood animals. Human beings can do all those things too, but we can do one thing that animals can't right? And that is reason. We have a rational soul. So to say that we are, uh, that, that man is a rational animal is to sort of put him in his place in the hierarchy there, right? Rocks, plants, animals, humans, but we're mortal, right? So we're below the immortal things. So you got like angels and stuff above us. They're also rational, but they don't have bodies, Right. So we have we have reason in common with the angels. We have our our bodies in common with the animals. Right. And we're mortal. So it's a pretty good definition. Right. It actually it's 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 it seems kind of simple, but it's fairly all encompassing. Um, I know that. And I admit that I am such a creature. Do you know nothing else about what you are? No, nothing. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Rational, animal, mortal. <laughs> Now I know another cause of your sickness, and the most important, you've forgotten what you are, right? She's like, your definition of man sucks, Boethius. That's not what a man is, right? You're kind of missing the whole point. Um, so, yeah, okay. So this is the third problem, right? So now she's going she's gonna to give her diagnosis. And so I am fully aware of the reason for your sickness and the remedy for it, too. You are confused because you have forgotten what you are, and therefore you are upset because you're in exile and stripped of all your possessions. Okay, so he's forgotten who he is. His definition of, of man is terrible, right? And for that reason, that's why he's upset about being in exile and stripped of all his possessions. Okay? Because you are ignorant of the purpose of things... You think that stupid and evil men are powerful and happy. And because you have forgotten how the world is governed, you suppose that these changes of your fortune came about without purpose. So, again, just notice the connections that she's making. We're not going to unpack this too much right now because this is what, like, books two, three, and four are going to be about, okay? Uh, So we'll have lots of time to see how she works out this stuff. But notice what she's doing, right? She has observed these, what she identifies as the three crucial things, right? Again, just like your doctor will ask you all these things and they will notice the the couple important things, right? Like your stiff neck might not mean anything to you. You might not even think it's relevant to your condition, right? But you say, I have a stiff neck and your doctor's like, okay, stiff neck, right? Got it. Right. Uh, You know, so your doctor will pick out from all of your history, uh, you know, the symptoms that you're having, which you might not understand any connection between, but your doctor understands. Okay, right. Now I can see the condition that this likely points to exactly what lady philosophy has done. So what are this? What are those three glaring symptoms? Right. You, you, You don't know what a human being really is. 
you don't remember how the world is governed and you don't remember the goal or purpose of the governing of, 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 of you know, to what end all things are moving. Right. Those are those are your three big problems. And and she connects them here explicitly to the things he's been complaining about. You think he's upset because he's in exile and stripped of his possessions. He's upset because he thinks that stupid and evil men are powerful and happy. And he's upset because he, uh, he thinks that the changes of his fortune came about without purpose. Maybe he's been talking about how fortune abandoned him, right? And how, like, stupid and arbitrary it seemed. Like, I was happy. Like, you know, I was in youth, and now all of a sudden I was old, right? From back from his first poem. And she says, yeah, okay, there's a direct connection here. Your, your exile and being stripped of your possessions upsets you because you forgot, you've forgotten who you are. You think stupid and evil men are powerful and happy because you're ignorant of the purpose of all things. You think the changes in your fortune came about without purpose because you've forgotten how the world is governed. Right? Okay, so we need to sort out those things and all these other things will make sense. Um, but there's hope, right? Such notions are enough to cause not only sickness but death. But be grateful to the giver of health that nature has not entirely forsaken you. For you have the best medicine for your health in your grasp of the truth about the way the world is governed. You believe that the world is not subject to the accidents of chance but to divine reason. Therefore, you have nothing to fear. From this tiny spark, the living fire can be rekindled. Notice the irony here, and it's kind of, there have been, you know, a bunch of painful ironies to Boethius throughout book one, and book one ends with a kind of a beautiful irony, right? His central complaint was, the world is so orderly, how can these bad things happen, right? It's not that he's given up. It's not despair, exactly. It's why she's saying it's, you're still treatable, right? It's not over. It's not despair. Uh, but, uh, but again, the whole core of his problem was the conflict. How can a good God let this happen? Right? Why is it that uh, that get, you know uh, you know K as you were saying you know K characterized his complaint in the poem uh, in poem five as uh, God you missed a spot right um, exactly exactly um, and that's what drives him crazy right it doesn't make sense. Why would God screw up humanity like this, right? Why would there be that one exception to what he's doing? Well, she says, she turns this around now. That thing which bugs you more than anything else, that's the hope for you, right? The fact that you see that, the fact that you're so bugged by that, that's the only really positive sign. Right, you're pretty sick, and it could even be a sick un- a sickness. Un- in some circumstances, it could be a sickness unto death, right? Uh, but it's not going to be a sickness unto death for you, right? You're gonna you're you're gonna pull through. I'm pretty sure we're gonna we're we're gonna make a full recovery here. Uh, and the thing that's going to make the difference is that spark, that one spark that is left, uh, which is that you believe the world is not subject. To the accidents of chance, but to divine reason. Okay, hold on to that, and we will move forward. Uh, James is asking, James Stevens was asking, is this still uh, gentle treatment? No, she's going to start the gentle treatment in book two. Uh, this is her giving her diagnosis. She's like, okay, here's the problem. Now, gently, we're going to work through this, 
Right. Um, Kay is asking, what would she do for one that had lost even that tiny spark, the belief that the world is uh, is not subject to, to chance but to divine reason? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, well, we don't know exactly because it's not the situation here, right? Um, I have a theory, Kay. But it's just a theory. Again, it's hard to say because it's it's outside the scope of what we get, right? So it's one of those things, it's like one of those questions that you ask a book, but the book doesn't have the answer, right? Because the book is talking about something else. Um, so, you know, I don't, we, we don't know the answer, but I have theory. Um, and uh, my theory is this book isn't going to work for them, right? Lady philosophy can't treat them. Does it mean they, like... God gives up on them? No, just lady philosophy, right? Um, if they, if if that spark had gone out, if he didn't believe, if he couldn't believe that anymore, if he had lost that, lady philosophy isn't going to be able to help him. That doesn't mean that there's no help possible, just not from lady philosophy. Um, so I think that's you know in a sense the as I say the kind of the the ecumenical grounds of his uh, of his givens here right um, make this consolation open to many and not just to uh, you know not 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 just to Christians um, but uh, but there are some to whom it won't be open right again if you're not willing to go there if you if you're not willing to grant that the rest of this is probably not going to do much for you right. Because, again, what does philosophy have to offer? Um, <laughs> Jordan says she just leave them to the to the muses of poetry. Yeah, exactly. Strumpets come back in, right? It's fine. Yeah, just uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Stephen says that if they, uh, they, uh, do I think they'd have to get a second opinion from Lady Theology? Yeah, possibly. I think. Uh, uh, or Lady Charity, as uh, as Kay says, yeah, quite quite possibly. Um, okay, good. All right, so that's it. Look at that! Boom, seventeen slides. The eighteen that you see at the top counts the title, which doesn't really count. We did it all, no problem, on schedule. Now, book one is the shortest book, so uh, this is the easy stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll get there. So, all right. Uh, next week, book two, we will start. Uh, we'll start talking about fortune. Um, it's going to be primarily the first bit. Uh, you know, you're confused um, because you have forgotten who you are, what you are, and therefore you are upset because you were in exile and stripped of all your possessions. The gentle treatment on that point in particular is going to begin next week in book two. So read book two, and we'll come back for more of this next time. Uh, 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 Things so this is this is really just the foundation, right? This lays out the problem, both the problem that Boethius sees, right? The why do bad things happen to good people? Why does evil exist in a good world ruled over by a good God? So laying down that fundamental question, right, is one of the things that's been accomplished. And Lady Philosophy's initial diagnosis, right? We have a, her much more specific. We're not just kind of dealing with this broad question, right? There are three particular reasons why he's having that problem, why this seems like a problem for him. Notice, of course, the implication through all of this diagnosis is that he's wrong, right? In other words, he shouldn't be upset because he's in exile and stripped of his possessions. He shouldn't think 
that stupid and evil men are powerful and happy, right? Remember, he's all worked up the fact that the bad guys win. She's already given away her answer, right? By implication. They don't. And you suppose the changes of your fortune came about without purpose. They didn't. There's a purpose, right? You're, you're, you're in prison for a reason, right? So cheer up. Um, we'll begin to follow her trail uh, uh, to getting there next time. All right. Treatment next week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Thanks for your patience. I apologize. It started a little later than I meant to because I actually had to reboot my computer. The stupid go-to webinar crashed, uh, and it forced me to reboot my computer. I had everything set up. Of course, I'm, like, simulcasting in three different places at once, and I had, like, all my windows arranged, and I was all ready to go, and then I had to reboot. So that's why I was doing it. I apologize for that. But thanks for your patience, uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys next Wednesday. Bye now. Okay, now I have to shut off all three of my (laughs) things at once here. Bye, everybody.